0: Welcome back, True Crime Army. I'm your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a true crime podcast where I cover crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to enjoy listening. I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Before I start, I want to give a shout out to today's producer, Chloe Watson. Woohoo, Chloe, thank you so much for supporting Military Murder Podcast. You are a rock star. All right, listeners, I can't believe this is episode number 16. Wow. I just want to ask, if you tune in every single week, or if this is your first week tuning in and you love the show, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or CastBox. It's a great way to ensure that people on those apps find the show. All right. Today, I am bringing you an Air Force case that has to do with a promotion testing cheating scandal, a love affair, Life insurance and murder. Yep. Military love can be so fickle, right? Today's case centers around the young high-speed master sergeant who was the youngest airman to reach that rank at the time, and his wife, who was a nurse. But she knew something that could bring him to his knees if he messed with her. And then, all of a sudden, she was murdered. But who murdered her? Was it her power-hungry Air Force husband? Her lover's jealous wife? one of her co-workers who randomly disappeared the day that she was murdered? Or was it someone else? Join me today as I discuss the murder of Air Force wife Kathleen Lipschum. Now, let's dig in. For this story, I read an amazing book by Irene Pence called A Clue from the Grave. I also watched the Forensic Files episode titled True Lies. And just so you're aware, there is an investigation discovery episode of Scorned Love Kills titled Sex, Secrets and Sergeants that covers this case. In addition to those documentaries and the book, I read news articles by the Daily Press, the King Spot Times and the Time Shreveport. Our story begins in the 70s with Bill Lipscomb and Kathleen Adams. They went to high school together, and he was the athlete. Varsity football team, wrestling team, you know, the typical jock. He drove a yellow Corvette convertible, which I think is kind of cool. Kathleen was the beautiful and popular girl. But Bill and Kathleen, they weren't high school sweethearts like we often see in movies. They knew of each other in passing, but they didn't date. That didn't mean, though, that Bill didn't have his eye on her. In the fall after high school graduation, Bill looked up Kathleen at her college, and they hit it off. And this is how their romance began. Within a month of dating though, on October 2nd, 1974, Bill joined the Air Force at 18 years old and was off to faraway lands. Boot camp, other training, and eventually he wound up in Okinawa, Japan to be exact. He left behind a young romance, but wasn't giving up hope that this long distance relationship would work out. And I know that this story is not too different for many military romances. Well, Bill and Kathleen kept in contact by snail mail, and after a while, he proposed. Kathleen was like, all right, okay, sure, let's do this. And then he mailed her a ring. And I don't know if that's cute or if it's kind of lame, but regardless, he mailed her a ring. Ladies, what do you think about getting a ring mailed to you? In any event, the couple planned to marry within two weeks of his return. So he was going to land in the U.S., and two weeks later, they were going to get married. I doubt that Kathleen imagined herself as a military spouse when he showed up to her college room a couple years earlier, but that's exactly what she was about to become. And the crazy part, Kathleen had a sister and they were about three years apart. And these two sisters their entire lives, they had planned this double wedding. And that's exactly what they did. On January 22nd, 1978, Kathleen and Bill married at a joint wedding with Kathleen's sister and her husband. Okay. Fast forward a little bit of time, and our story picks up in 1985. By this point, the couple had been married for eight years, and they had two kids. At this time, they were seven and four. Bill was a young, high-achieving Air Force technical sergeant, and by this point, he had already served five years in a prestigious position as a drill sergeant at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas, and he did so well as a drill sergeant that he was selected to become a training instructor. Bill thrived on this high-paced military life. And Kathleen, she was kind of bad A. She was a senior research nurse in the OBG department at the University of Texas. It appeared that over the years, months, days, the couple, they had just stopped loving each other. And Kathleen began talking divorce. But Bill wasn't keen on not having Kathleen as a wife. Kathleen started the divorce proceedings anyway, and they were almost final, just needing Bill's signature. When all of a sudden, Kathleen got a call from Bill. He called her from the airport and he had the kids. He threatened to take the kids away on an airplane if she didn't drop the divorce proceedings immediately. So she was like, whatever, you're, you're freaking bluffing, whatever. uh huh, OK. And guess what? Bill took the kids from Texas to Virginia. While the kids were in Virginia, where Bill's family is from, Kathleen wasn't allowed to talk to the kids. And this was making Kathleen very nervous. And Kathleen finally realized that Bill was serious when she got wind that Bill's father was going to take an international job. At this point, Kathleen feared that she might never see her kids again. So she immediately dropped the divorce proceedings. After Bill's shenanigans, the couple continued to live together. But in 1986, Kathleen again initiated divorce. She was fed up with it. And in early June of 86, she moved out of the family apartment and into an apartment complex not too far away. She kept the kids during the week and Bill would take the kids on weekends whenever he wanted. The neighborhood where Kathleen moved wasn't the best, but it would make do for a soon-to-be single working mother of two. On Friday night, June 6, 1986, Kathleen and Bill exchanged the kids, and Kathleen was expecting a quiet, relaxing weekend. On Sunday around dinner time, Bill went to drop the kids off as planned, And when he got to the apartment complex, he knocked and there was no answer. He was getting pretty tiffed because he had the kids all weekend and she needed to take the kids because he had to work in the morning. He knocked again, nothing. So he took the kids back home, returning a few hours later and still no Kathleen. So he and the kids left notes on the door and that night, no one heard from Kathleen. The next morning, Bill couldn't risk being late to work as a TI, training instructor. So he dropped the kids off at their normal daycare and he went to work. There, he called Kathleen at work to give her a piece of his mind. But she wasn't there. So he left the message with the receptionist. As the mountain of messages for Kathleen piled up, the receptionist called Kathleen. No answer. She called again. So it was time to get the boss involved. She contacted Dr. Pearl, the head of the OBGYN department, and he assured them, hey, She didn't leave town, which is what they originally were talking about, because he had seen her on Saturday. So Kathleen's co-workers decided to go to her house. At Kathleen's house, they saw notes on her door. One was from Bill, and it read, we were here at 645, and we'll try again later. The other note, clearly written by a child, read, Mommy, we love you. The ladies knocked, and all they got was eerie silence. They got a key from the manager. Surely there would be a clue inside as to Kathy's whereabouts. The apartment was as eerily quiet on the inside as it was on the outside. Everything looked orderly except the kitchen where the dishwasher was open and a used pan sat on the counter. Now these ladies, they were acting like legit detectives. They went to the bathroom and then they went to the kitchen and they were looking for signs of water to show that someone had just recently been in the house or whatever. But everything was bone dry. No signs that anyone had used the sink or the shower in the last few hours. These super-duper friend detectives were not done. They went back to the office and they called Kathleen's mom, Nadine Adams. The ladies shared their concerns with Nadine, and Nadine said that the last time that she spoke to her daughter was on a Friday. Nadine quickly hung up to start figuring out what was going on. Where was her daughter? She called Bill and left a voicemail. Eventually, as the day progressed, Bill called back and he told Kathleen, look, It was my weekend with the kids. I had them all weekend, was scheduled to drop them off at 6.45 on Sunday, but she wasn't home. I went back an hour later and nothing. Listen, I'm worried because I told her that that area that she was living in wasn't very good, but she wanted to take my kids to live there anyway. She was so stubborn. I called the police, but they won't do anything because it hasn't been 24 hours. He then confided that his grandmother had also died that morning and he needed to go to Virginia for the funeral. Ugh, Nadine felt terrible. She told Bill, hey, listen, you do your thing. I'm going to handle finding Kathleen, but I want you to keep me in the loop if you hear anything. Nadine then called her younger daughter, Darlene. Darlene and Kathleen were besties, as I mentioned earlier, with the three-year gap and the double wedding, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Nadine and Darlene said, screw this 24-hour rule. We're going to file a missing persons report. Meanwhile, by the end of the day on Monday, Kathleen's coworkers were freaking out. And they had wrapped things up at work when they began to hear news reports of a blonde woman, approximately late teens, early 20s, who had been found dead near a road in San Antonio, a Jane Doe. Kathy's friends thought the worst. They then went to the police department to check on this Jane Doe to see if it was their coworker. Their instincts were right. It was Kathleen. She was dead. Earlier that morning, a man was driving to work when he made the gruesome discovery, a naked Jane Doe with her clothes neatly rolled next to her. Oddly, her legs were frozen in a weird position. They were, I'm going to say, crisscross applesauce. And for those of you with kids know what I'm talking about. But for those of you who are non-PC, her legs were frozen in Indian style. The Bexar County Sheriff's Department was soon on scene. In a quick look at the body in the scene, they deduced that she had likely been killed somewhere else and placed in this location about four or five hours before her discovery. She had strangulation marks around her neck, and the police thought that this might be a sex crime. Remember, she was naked. By the end of the day, Jane Doe was identified as Kathleen. Now, the detectives had to figure out who wanted this young military spouse dead. First blush, my true crime army is probably thinking, duh, Margot, hashtag the husband did it. But this case would not be that easy to solve because the case would go cold. Various suspects would emerge and jurisdiction issues would soon emerge as well. Detectives were at square one. Question everyone, but start with the coworkers. Right away, the pending divorce emerges. Why were they getting a divorce? Well, according to Kathleen's co-workers, because Bill only cared about getting promoted and he spent all his time at work, leaving no time for her and the kids. Detectives dig deeper. Okay, was there another man in Kathleen's life? Yeah, actually, there was. She had been dating a married Dr. Pearl for roughly six months. Remember, Dr. Pearl was the senior doctor who worked with her, and he actually had admitted to seeing Kathleen on Saturday. So things were getting very, very scandalous in this investigation. Well, the cops wanted to know more. They wanted to know more about Bill. Was Bill ever violent? And the ladies didn't didn't really recall any violence, but they did recall that Kathleen confided in them that Bill was into some shady, shady business. Specifically, him and his friends from the Air Force were cheating on the military promotion test. And Kathleen knew all about it. And Bill had told her, if you ever disclose this cheating scandal, the people in on this, they're going to get you. But those were all the details that Kathleen's friends could offer. Then the police had to do the dreaded task of notifying next of kin. Bill was called and he came as quickly as he heard. Of course, as soon as he got there, the detectives are giving him the once over. Does he have any scratches? Does he look like he's just been in a fight? And as they look at him, they, they realize, no, he's just a typical clean cut military guy. The cops were like, okay, man, your wife was murdered. Do you mind if we ask you questions? And he said anything. I'm an open book. And he gave the same facts as indicated earlier. That weekend, he had the kids. He was supposed to drop them off. She wasn't there and yada, yada, yada. That's it. He added, quote, Kathy's a good woman. I don't know who would have done this to her. I didn't know she had been killed until the lieutenant called me and told me about it tonight. I don't know anything about the incident, end quote. While he made this statement, he cried. But oddly enough, there were no tears as noted by the detectives. Well, Dr. Pearl was up next. Kathy's lover. Dr. Pearl walks into the police station with his wife. I swear, as I was reading Irene Pence's book, I felt like I was enthralled in an episode of Jerry Springer. And I'm not making light of Kathleen's murder, but goodness gracious, the police have to pick through so much human nonsense as they investigate and dig. That you just have to give so much props to cops and detectives for what they do. Anyway, can you imagine Dr. Pearl's conversation with his wife before heading to the precinct? Honey, I got a confession. I'm having an affair. Oh, oh, you're mad? Well, you're really going to be mad. My mistress was murdered and the cops need to talk to me. Can you go with me to the precinct to talk to the police? Can you imagine? This sounds horrible for all parties involved. Anyway... Dr. Pearl showed up to the precinct with his wife, but before answering any questions, he requested an attorney. At this point, it seemed like Bill could actually have a motive to kill. His wife was in fact having an affair, but Dr. Pearl could also have a motive to kill, potentially getting rid of a clingy mistress. And let's not forget his jealous wife who also might have a motive to kill. Nadine arrived to the precinct next to discover her daughter was dead. And Nadine was determined to find out who did this. Nadine told the police that the divorce was rough for the couple and Bill was fighting every single thing. But recently, he had given in and he had let Kathy take the kids and life was actually kind of quiet. Nadine knew about Dr. Pearl and she knew that Kathleen was head over heels in love with this guy. But Nadine was surprised when the detectives told her that they interviewed him with his wife. Like, what? What wife? Everyone thought that they were separated, including Kathleen. In fact, Kathleen had already been making plans to be with Dr. Pearl after her divorce was finalized. The investigators then went to Kathleen's house and they combed through for any clues. But they really didn't find anything. They did note that Kathleen's car was also missing. Almost immediately, weird things began to happen. Like the day of Kathleen's funeral, Kathy's next door neighbor receives an ominous call from an unknown man who said, quote, you're the next one to die. End quote. If I was this neighbor, I would be petrified. I'd be packing my stuff and leaving immediately. Right after the wake, Bill wanted help from Nadine to get some insurance paperwork out of Kathleen's house. And he was in a rush because he was leaving town. But this was a point of contention for Nadine and Darlene. Why was Bill so gung-ho about this insurance money? I mean, they were divorced and the money was for the kids, not for him. But Bill didn't care. He even reminded Nadine and Darlene, hey, I'm the one that paid the premiums. Yikes, not the look you're going for when your wife was just murdered. So, detectives were interviewing everyone. Did anyone see anything the day that Kathleen went missing? Who was she with? Anyone acting strange since her death? Well there actually was something odd. There was a male nurse that worked with Kathleen and lived in the same apartment complex as she did. And no joke, the Monday that Kathleen was found dead, well, ever since that day, that male nurse failed to show up to work. He didn't even bother picking up his last paycheck. The detectives added that to the top of their list because why would this guy who happens to work with Kathleen and lives in the same apartment complex as her not show up to work starting the same day that Kathleen was murdered. It didn't make sense. One of Kathleen's neighbors also had something. She said that she had seen a woman with short red hair walking by Kathleen's front door the day that she was found murdered. So this kind of piqued the investigator's interest because on Kathleen's rolled up iron shirt that was lying next to her dead body, there were some red hairs. Okay, so they thought another lead that we need to follow up on, a lady with short red hair. Eventually, detectives got a break when they found Kathleen's car in a Luby's parking lot a mile from her place. The car was unlocked, but there were no keys. But the car yielded absolutely zero clues about Kathleen's murder. They also discover Kathleen had three insurance policy totaling over $300,000. The beneficiary? Her husband, Bill. Now, this is an interesting case because Bill had already signed the divorce paperwork. But there was one missing signature, Kathleen's. Had Kathleen signed the paperwork, the divorce would be final and Kathleen's entire estate would go to her children. But since the signature wasn't there, they were still technically married and Bill would receive all of Kathleen's estate. Roughly six months after Kathleen's death, Bill applied for a humanitarian assignment from the Air Force. A humanitarian assignment is when someone is requesting an either in-cycle or out-of-cycle military move to a different location to alleviate some sort of hardship. But military members have hardships all the time. So in order to qualify for this humanitarian assignment, the person's issue must be more significant than is typical for other military members. Bill's request basically stated that he wanted to move to Virginia to be closer to his family. He said that the murder of his wife was hard on him, particularly becoming a single parent while doing the military training instructor gig. He needed the family support and his request was granted. After the family moved from Texas to Virginia, Kathleen's kids would visit with Darlene and Nadine, their aunt and their grandmother. During one of these visits with Darlene, Darlene was putting the kids to bed and Kathleen's little boy looked up at the stars and started talking about his mother being a star. Then the boy, in typical mysterious young boy fashion, said, I have a secret with my daddy, but he says I can't ever tell anyone. Daddy would get real mad. He told me so. Please don't make me tell you. Daddy would give me a real hard spanking, end quote. That was the end of the conversation. But Nadine kept thinking, what secret could this little boy have? That fall, about 15 months since Kathleen had been murdered, Bill was up for promotion and he rocked the promotion test and only failed two questions. And his latest performance report read: quote, Technical Sergeant Lipschum is a total professional, and his selection to Master Sergeant is well deserved. Greater responsibility is warranted, impressive results will follow. Promote ahead of contemporaries, end quote. Meanwhile, this whole promotion thing is going on in the background, the kids visit Texas again. And in another one of these visits to Nadine, Kathleen's oldest daughter drops a bombshell that would blow this case wide open. The oldest daughter reveals that Bill, the father, was not at home when he said he was when their mother was murdered. All this time, the kids were his alibi, but now his oldest daughter said that he wasn't home. On the night of the murder at one in the morning, the kids were fast asleep in their bed when they woke up in the middle of the night to go potty. But when they woke up, Bill wasn't there. The kids looked all over the place, are checking under thing. You know how kids are. They're checking all over the place. They can't find him. They even check outside and they can't find his car. Nadine then tells the detectives this information and they interview the daughter and she basically says the same thing again. My daddy said he was home. However, We remember waking up in the middle of the night and my dad not being there. Well, the detectives recorded this. And even after they had a recording, it wasn't enough for an arrest. In the interim, Kathleen and Nadine were trying to keep Kathleen's murder investigation from going cold. At the time, Bill was in Virginia with the kids and had recently gotten married to a woman that he met when he moved to Virginia. It had been two years since Kathleen had been murdered. And Darlene and Nadine decided it was time to hire a private investigator to look into the case. The private investigators names were Mike Goudry and his partner, Tom Bevins. So the PIs did what any good PI would do. They got the police record as they were looking through the investigative files. It didn't seem like the police had done any heavy lifting at all. In fact, it just looked like they did a cursory look at the case and then they put the file away. Well, the PIs, they were forced to start from scratch, which is kind of a good thing. They started with interviewing all of Bill and Kathleen's closest friends. And as they looked at the file and saw pictures of Kathleen's body as she lay dead, as she was discovered, they wondered, why were Kathleen's legs frozen in that frog-like position? So this was something that was always in the back of their head. Where had she been shoved in immediately after her murder to allow rigor mortis to set in while in that odd position? Rigor mortis is the stiffening of the joints and muscles of a body a few hours after death, and it usually lasts from one to four days. That's what my Google search revealed. The PIs eventually put together a team, and they first found an ally in the San Antonio Police Department, who assigned an investigator to the case. Then that investigator reached out to the Office of Special Investigations, OSI, specifically Dr. Charles McDowell, and there were many others, of course. And OSI was not only interested in the murder, but they were also interested in this promotion testing scandal because now they had some dirt with the promotion testing scandal for which they can get more information about the murder. I want to chat briefly about Air Force promotions. Air Force promotions back in the 70s and 80s, I'm sure they're different now, but testing and promotions are one of those areas that they're constantly changing, right? They're always trying to improve. So I'm going to explain the promotion system as I learned about it from Irene Pence's book. So please do not crucify me if I get this wrong, okay? Every branch is different. In order to promote in the Air Force, according to Irene Pence, to the next highest enlisted rank, promotion boards, they look at two things. They look at a person's annual feedback and they look at a test called the Weighted Airman Promotion System, the WAPS test. Annual feedback looks at duty performance, military bearing, behavior. They're trying to figure out, like, are you, should should you be promoted, Right. Bill constantly had glowing reports. He was an Air Force golden child, and he could do no wrong. In one report, in fact, it said, quote, an outstanding role model for the entire Air Force, end quote. He did go on to promote almost every other year, which is unheard of. In 1985, he was named the Air Training Command Master Instructor after his students had the highest success rate on base. Bill was excited of the prospect of making Master Sergeant E-7 at the age of 30 because allegedly at the time that would make him the youngest person to reach that rank at the age of 30. I'm going to introduce someone new into the story. His name is Richard. We're just going to call him Richard. Bill and Richard were basic training instructors together and they had become close friends. Bill had a proposition for his new bestie who would also be testing for promotion soon. Bill proposed, hey, there's so many of us testing for rank and they never change the questions. If a couple of us put our heads together, we can probably get like a really good study guide with all of the answers. All right, let me stop right there. To my non-military listeners, this sounds like a fantastic idea. A study guide. Yay! But not so fast. This is actually illegal in the military. Go figure. Okay. Go to any military training and there are specific things where collaboration is encouraged, but there are other assignments where you cannot even mention them to others in passing or you risk getting in trouble. Well, one of those things is a promotion test. You cannot speak a word to a soul of what was on the test. And you can't even go back and highlight your study guide and then give that to your friends after the test. I know that sounds weird to my non-military members, but you know that those are the rules. Okay. Okay. Back to Bill. Bill was proposing cheating on a promotion test, which is kind of a big deal. So he he was proposing, let's make these study guides with the help of others all over the country. And then we're going to share it among ourselves. And that way, no one will ever rat us out. Right. Because they'd be sharing in the answers. So there would be no reason why someone want to say rat someone else out because they'd be ratting themselves out. Well. His friend Richard was on board. And so the cheating scandal began. What the detectives learned from Kathleen's friends when they interviewed them was that Kathleen was going to be holding this cheating scandal over Bill's head over the divorce. Kind of like bait. Sign the paperwork and we'll be good. If you don't sign the paperwork, I'm going to go straight to the Air Force and spill the beans about your testing scandal. But the very idea that a highly decorated, respected Air Force Master Sergeant, the youngest Air Force Master Sergeant, would cheat on the WAPS test and then kill his wife, leaving her naked and dead on the side of the road? I mean, no way! That just seemed absurd. Well, the investigation team combed through all of Kathleen's things and buried at the bottom of one of those bags of evidence, they found Kathleen's diary. And she was a great note taker. I mean, she noted every time that Bill took a WAPS test and every person involved in the scandal. There was one particular note that stood out to the investigators. It said, quote, softball tournament, Shannon there, end quote. So investigators find this Shannon. And when they tell her that they want to speak to her, the first words out of her mouth are, quote, if this has anything to do with Bill Lipscomb, I want an attorney, end quote. Wait, What? This is going to be interesting. All right, who is Shannon? Well, Shannon was a single mother who was on active duty and she was also a drill sergeant. After a grant of immunity was worked out, Shannon spilled some of the beans. But only after being guaranteed that she would be placed in, get this, the Federal Witness Protection Program after testifying. She was really scared. At first, she said, quote, If I tell you what I know, I know Bill will kill me, end quote. And that's why she got placed in the witness protection program and she was granted immunity. And she told the detectives this, quote, I know that Bill hired someone to kill his wife, end quote. Say what now? Shannon told the following story. She met Bill in 1984 when he was her military training instructor. At some point, their relationship became sexual and Bill confided in Shannon that he wanted his wife dead. Why, you might ask? Well, he wanted his wife dead because he wanted to keep the kids. At first, he contemplated killing Kathleen himself and actually took steps to do this. For example, he put a hole in the oil pan in Kathleen's car. And when that was unsuccessful to cause any harm, he told Shannon, quote, Just wait and see. You'll read about it in the newspapers, end quote. Bill also revealed to Shannon that Kathleen had threatened to expose the testing scandal unless he let up on the custody battle. At this point, detectives' jaws are probably on the floor and they're like, okay, 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 let's bring this back. We have a potentially scorned woman, Shannon. We need to make sure that she's not making this up. After all, you know, she was sleeping with Bill, Bill's wife died, and then instead of marrying Shannon or whatever it is, he ran off to Virginia and then married another woman. So the detectives and investigators, whatever you want to call them, they conducted a pretext phone call to see if Bill would talk. A pretext call is when someone makes a recorded call that investigators can then use against someone. And this is really clever. A person not expecting that a friend would turn on them might sing like a canary on the phone. So Shannon called Bill. The first time that she called him in a very long time. But Bill didn't act surprised at all to hear from her. She told him all about OSI coming to interview him, and she also told them that they had found Kathleen's diary, which, which talked about the testing scandal. But Bill, was he didn't seem fazed at all. He just said, hey, I didn't do anything wrong. Shannon was like, what? What do you mean? Don't you remember what you said about wanting Kathleen dead because of this whole testing scandal? He downplayed it and said, you know, Shannon, I was just mad. When I said it, I wasn't serious. And then Bill did something very strange. He offered to hire a lawyer for Shannon if she was afraid that OSI would come back and talk to her again. Now, at this point, I want us all to remember all of the potential persons of interest in this case up to this point. Okay, remember that redhead who neighbors had seen at Kathleen's house? Early on, the investigators were able to cross off the red-haired woman from the list of suspects because it turned out that it was Kathleen's co-worker looking for her that morning. Remember the coworker who conveniently went missing after Kathleen's murder? Well, the investigators found him in another state. Turned out, he literally just packed up and left. He had no idea about Kathleen and he was in another state by the time Kathleen was murdered. So he was crossed off the list as well. Then there was Dr. Pearl, Kathleen's boyfriend. Well, he had an alibi. He was with his wife and his wife had an alibi. She was with her husband. And then there was Bill. He had an alibi as well, but that alibi was breaking down as his daughter had just said he wasn't home. By 1989, the Air Force found Richard. Remember, Richard is the guy who was in on this whole testing scandal. When the investigators met with Shannon, Shannon said find Richard he'll have more information and they found him in 1989 the investigators tracked him down to Virginia he was living only a few miles away from Bill so the investigators tried to track him down by looking him up in the military and when they did that they discovered that Richard was on the same track as Bill he was the youngest guy to be promoted as a training instructor but oddly it appeared that during the summer of 1986 his performance began to decline. He started showing up to work late, he started having substance abuse issues, he was insubordinate, and he was having money problems. Eventually then, Richard's military contract was up, and because of all of his problems, he wasn't allowed to re-enlist. So he received an honorable discharge from the Air Force. Although the investigators had tracked Richard down, they didn't pay him a visit quite yet. The investigation led detectives back to Kathleen's apartment complex. Maybe someone there knew something. The investigator stumbled across one of Kathleen's neighbors. This neighbor reveals that she called the police back when Kathleen was murdered. Literally like the week of the day of or something like that. She left them a message. But it had almost been two years and no one had ever called her back. And guys, this is this is very important. This is why it is so important for you to follow up with people if you think that you have important information, regardless of what it is. Anyway, investigators spoke to this neighbor and she remembered that on Sunday when Bill was supposed to drop off the kids, Kathleen and her were swimming at the pool and they were chatting. Kathleen had told her that her estranged husband had called her earlier and told her that if she came to pick up the kids at his house, they could divvy up some of the family photos. Oh, wow. Wow. This was the first time that the detectives ever heard this story. In fact, Bill had always claimed that the last time he saw Kathleen was on Friday during the child pickup. The detectives eventually pay Richard a visit. And when they do, Richard is an open book. And this would turn out to be the nail in Bill's coffin. <laughs> Richard described that in April of 1986, before Kathleen was murdered, Bill came over and told him that Kathleen had filed for divorce and he was distraught at the prospect of losing his kids. And it was at this point that Bill asked Richard to kill Kathleen. And then Richard describes the day that Kathleen was murdered. But Richard was adamant, I did not kill Kathleen, Bill did. And the detectives were like, oh, BS, man. You know a little bit too much. It sounds like you were more than just a little bit involved. At this point, Richard would do anything to prove his innocence, including going to see Bill while wearing a wire. According to Richard, Bill had this cedar wood chest in his bedroom. And after Bill killed Kathleen, Bill put her body in the chest, which the detectives are thinking, remember, the back of their head, they're thinking, why were her legs crossed in that weird frog-like position? Well, this explains it. She had been placed in this chest. Richard then admits to getting rid of the body and then returning the cedar chest to Bill. Well, a few days after Richard had gotten rid of Kathleen, Bill called Richard up, gave him that cedar chest and said, get rid of it. But guess what? Richard didn't get rid of it. And do you know why? He actually told detectives this, quote, It was too good to throw away. And besides, I needed more storage space, end quote. And then Richard handed over the chest to the police. And in it, the police discovered a tiny speckle of blood that belonged to none other than Kathleen Lipscomb. When the detectives asked Richard why he was so forthcoming, Richard said that he had accepted Jesus since separating from the military. And he had been wanting to make things right for a while now spilling the beans was his way of repenting. But before he was in the clear, he'd have to wear a wire twice. The first time, Richard met Bill in a parking lot at a shopping center. But Bill was skeptical and Bill, no joke, asked, how do I know that you're not wearing a wire? And then Bill started feeling Richard up. He felt him up in the back so he didn't find the wire. Now, this conversation would yield nothing from Bill. Just more denials and Bill placing the blame on Dr. Pearl. But Richard still wanted to get something on the record because he feared that Kathleen's murder would be pinned on him. So a few days after meeting him the first time, still wearing a wire, Richard called Bill and told him he was thinking about either killing himself or coming clean to the police. And he was talking like a frantic maniac. And Bill said, don't do it. And then Bill agreed to meet again. Bill met Richard and they chatted for a long time, both getting emotional. Richard was slinging allegations about the day of the murder, how Bill committed the murder, how Bill had asked Richard to take the kids out for dinner before Kathleen arrived, and when they returned from McDonald's, Kathleen was dead. He also was saying that Bill gave Richard the chest to get rid of. And then Richard told Bill that he still had the cedar chest. At this point, Bill was shocked. Then Bill quickly said, Shannon killed her. But Richard was done with Bill and the conversation ended. Soon thereafter, Bill was arrested. While in custody, Bill agreed to talk and he didn't request an attorney for whatever reason. And the investigators went straight for the jugular and they asked, why did you kill your wife? To which Bill replied, quote, I don't know why, end quote, as he glanced into the abyss. And then all of a sudden he caught himself and said, wait, 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 I didn't kill her. It was then that Bill requested a lawyer, a lawyer that he paid by using portions of Kathleen's life insurance. Eventually though, Bill confessed, and these are the facts as they came out. On Sunday, June 8th, at about 6.30, Kathleen went over to divvy up the family pictures. Bill recalled looking at Kathleen through the window as she got out of her car And he realized that even though they were almost divorced, he still loved her. It was kind of a dreamy moment, in fact. But as soon as she got to the house, she demanded to know where her kids were. And when she found out that the kids were with Richard, she threw a fit. And she told Bill, hey, listen, I will never let you see my kids again if this is going to be a routine thing letting my kids go with your raggedy-ass friend, Richard. And in that instant, feelings of anger and rage began to build inside of Bill. Kathleen got straight to business, and she sat on the floor with the family pictures laid out as she combed through the ones that she wanted. Well, her and Bill started to discuss their weekend, and Kathleen finally told Bill that she had a boyfriend. And this further upset Bill. Kathleen continued to comb through the pictures, and according to Bill, she was keeping all the nice, professional, JCPenney-type pictures and giving him the raggedy ones. And the wedding pictures, let's not even talk about those. Kathleen was feeling herself in those wedding pictures. So she straight told Bill, these are nice pictures of me. I'll just cut you out of them as she flung them to her pile. According to Irene Pence's book, Bill, no kidding, describes a scene that played out in his psyche. So in his psyche, he describes battling with a little devil version of himself on his shoulder. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. It literally says this in the book. This little devil is sitting on his shoulder, telling him to shut her up, shut her up, shut her up. She'll never let you see the kids again. Shut her up. Shut her up now while you have the chance. And then everything began to go in slow motion. As reported by Charles Bagino in the Daily Press, Bill stripped his wife naked, raped her, sodomized her, then wrapped a piece of stereo cable around her neck and then pulled so tight that it snapped in half. Kathleen was able to gasp for air as she said, Oh my God, Bill, no! But he wrapped it around her neck again and pulled and pulled and pulled until her body went limp. Bill recalled the silence, listening for a heartbeat. Quote, It was an empty sound. A death-perfect silence. I was terrified. End quote. He had just killed his wife. He then placed her naked body in a wooden cedar chest in his closet. Okay. Soon after the murder, Richard got back to the house after taking the kids to McDonald's. And Bill asked Richard for help getting rid of the body and the car. Bill then, in the meantime, took the kids, put him in the car, and then he drove to Kathleen's house to set up his alibi. And by the time he got home, Kathleen's body was gone. He had all this adrenaline going, so he got the kids ready for bed and then he cleaned the entire house like a maniac. He says he vacuumed everything. He even took the vacuum bag out and cleaned the actual vacuum to get rid of any signs or any evidence. Reading the information about him vacuuming and then cleaning out the vacuum bag and then cleaning out the vacuum itself made me kind of think that maybe Bill was into watching true crime TV. But then again, so am I. I So there's that, I guess. I don't know. During his confession, Bill recalls the day Kathleen was discovered being the hardest day. Because on that day, he just was straight lying all day, the entire day, the entire day, lying, 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 lie after lie. And he had to remember his lie. And the whole week, in fact, he was remembering his lie, remembering his lie. But then as the days turned into months and the months turned into years, he began to think that he'd never get caught. But he did. Bill was charged by the military with premeditated murder and obstruction of justice. And this was a death penalty case. On August 20th, 1990, with the evidence against Bill, Bill accepted a plea deal in exchange for removing the death penalty from the table. But the prosecution wouldn't hold back in their sentencing argument, discussing disgusting evidence that not only had Kathleen been murdered by her husband, but he had also vaginally raped her and sodomized her. And as crazy as it may sound, as the prosecution described the scene, Bill showed no emotion in open court. The judge sentenced Bill to life in prison, a dishonorable discharge, a reduction to the lowest enlisted rank Airman Basic. But due to the plea agreement, Bill's prison sentence was capped at 60 years. With regards to the test cheating scandal, one of Bill's friends eventually broke down because he was afraid of getting in trouble for the murder. So he basically gave up all of the names of the people involved and pointed to a person at the records center located at Randolph Air Force Base, which is also in San Antonio, as the person who provided the bulk of the test questions and answers. And it's unknown what happened to the others involved in the cheating scandal. It's amazing that a man who allegedly was the youngest guy to make it to the rank of Master Sergeant fell from grace quite quickly, but not because of the cheating scandal that got him to the top but due to his efforts to quiet the voice of his soon-to-be ex-wife who threatened to out him. Nadine was beside herself after the case because she refused to give up on her daughter's case, even when people ridiculed her for even believing for one minute that this shiny Air Force master sergeant would kill his beautiful wife, the mother of his children. Yet here Nadine was, the mother who never gave up. As reported by Irene Pence at the end of her book, Many of the people involved in solving this case were recognized for their hard work. And at the time of the publication of the book, which was 23 years ago in 1997, Nadine, Kathleen's mom, was active in the Parents of Murdered Children Support Group. According to the Federal Bureau of Prisons website, it lists Bill's date of release from prison as March 20th, 2020. So I guess he'll be out any minute unless he's already out and the website just hasn't caught on yet. Nonetheless, he has served about half of his prison sentence. All right, True Crime Army, another case about alleged good people behaving badly. This is why I made this podcast, because we have to remain vigilant all the time. People hide in plain sight always. All right. I'm interested in hearing from you all. What do you guys think about the military promotion system? What do you guys think about the fact that but for Kathleen's mom and sister fighting for their daughter or sister, this master sergeant probably would have went on to make chief master sergeant and probably retired from the military. Isn't that a crazy thought? Let me know your thoughts on social on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast or Facebook at Military True Crime. And don't forget to leave a review on CastBox or if you're on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a review there as well. It takes only a few seconds. All right. This show was created by me, Margot, and produced by this week's producer, Chloe Watson. Thank you so much. All of the music was created by Tyops. Don't forget to go to my website, MilitaryMurderPodcast.com, for a link to my sources for this episode, which can also be found in my show notes. As always, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Shh, Mom's working on our podcast.